Father God, please now, by your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes and soften our hearts to see and hear what you're saying and then to respond in lives that take what you're saying seriously, that see that Jesus must be at the centre of all we do and are and that want to follow you in everything. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, one of the many things that people have been remembering about the Queen is uh, her Christmas messages and the, the very clear things that she often said about uh, Jesus in, in many of those messages. Um, here's one from uh, 2011. Uh, you might remember it. There it goes. Uh, God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. Now, I guess, you know, we hear those words and to some extent they kind of wash over us a bit, don't they? Particularly on Christmas Day after seven helpings of Christmas pudding, you know, it's just sort of on it goes. But just take a moment to consider what she's actually saying in, in those words and, and how extraordinary uh, what she's saying is. You see, if, so, if someone in the ancient world had heard those words from the Queen, well, they, they'd have said she was completely crazy. You know, a, a general, a general is exactly the kind of saviour that we need, surely. And, uh, you know, if you think of the Greeks, they would have, uh, have thrown in philosophy too as a great idea. Fantastic. But the, the idea of a saviour who isn't a general and, and who isn't a philosopher, who can't lead you into battle to defeat your enemies, who can't give you sage advice to fight your own inner demons or whatever it is, well, what good is a saviour if you can't do any of those things? And, and more than that, what is this about forgiving, people might have said. You know, you don't forgive people, particularly if they're your enemies. I mean, you don't forgive them, you kill them. You don't forgive them. Now, we hear these words today from, from Queen Elizabeth, and, and, and we don't hear them like that. But why is that? Well, we, we, you know, we hear the idea of forgiveness as sort of par for the course. Of course, we'd expect to forgive. Hard to do, but it is what we'd expect the Queen to say. But actually, when you think about it, that is the result of nothing more or less than 2,000 years of Christian history of the fact that Western civilization and nations like this one are founded not on the principles of Greek and Roman um, culture and, and the Greek and Roman world, but on the principles of Jesus and the Bible. And Jesus turned all that the world took for granted upside down. You see, his power was in weakness, in suffering and dying, and through that, destroying death in order to enable forgiveness for anyone who trusted in him. But of course, although to the Romans of the time, you know, Jesus appears in a backwater province away from all the action which is in Rome, not over there in Palestine, he, he, he didn't appear in a vacuum. And what he did was not actually all that surprising because it's there throughout what, what came before him in the history of God's people. And it's there in the book of Exodus, which we're studying this term. As books of the Bible go, I guess you know, Exodus is fairly well known, even among non-Christians. You know, there have been several films, haven't there? You know, notably Exodus, Gods and Kings, and uh, maybe Moses, you know, Prince of Egypt um, before that. You know, when the world, though, when the world tells the story, and it is an extraordinary story of the Exodus, it tends to want to focus on the human drama. 
and the, the human heroes. And at the centre of that, we want to say, is the hero, Moses. You know, the people were in slavery, but then came mighty, wise, powerful Moses, and he defeated Pharaoh, and he led them out of slavery. Well done, Moses, we want to say. But when you actually read Exodus, it won't quite let us do that. It it stubbornly insists in all kinds of ways that actually it is not Moses who's the hero, but it's God. God is the hero. And we see that in the the reading that we heard, which we're going to look at more closely. And this in turn helps us to understand how God's plan to save the world, at the centre of which is Jesus Christ, that plan isn't about battles and generals and might, and power, and strength, and human wisdom, philosophy. It's about weakness, and about giving oneself up for others. I think it's, it's fair to say that I think the Queen understood this, but, but, but many in our world, it may be including us, we, we struggle to understand and believe that it can be really true that weakness is nothing to be ashamed of. And, and pride in ourselves and our own achievements is a very dangerous and ugly thing. We kind of think, no, no, it must be a little bit possible to be a a bit proud of ourselves. And weakness isn't really all that great. Well, if we're going to go the way of weakness and service, of putting others before ourselves, the way that, that the Queen talks about, the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, if we're going to go that way in our world today, at work and at school and at home and everywhere in between... We need to understand how it's the only possible way for the people of God. And that is what this reading this morning helps us to understand. So let's, let's look more closely at it. You can see on the back of the notice sheet um, where we're going if you want to see. First of all, God can't use the proud. God can't use the proud from verses 11 to 15. Remember what's happened if you were with us last time. Moses was born at a dangerous time. Pharaoh was trying to do everything he could to, to kill every male child and in an extraordinary divine comic twist he ends up being rescued from the river by pharaoh's daughter who unknowingly gives him back to his mother to be raised at pharaoh's expense and now moses is older the second reading that we heard from the book of acts is the martyr stephen who gives this great speech before he's martyred in acts and he recounts israel's history and he's he fills in some of the details and he explains moses was 40 years old by this point 40 years living as a prince in Pharaoh's palace. But we assume, told by his mother as he grows up, you're not really Egyptian, you're Hebrew. And verse 11, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And in the way that the story is told, this seems to be exactly what we'd expect. You know, here's Prince Moses with all the privilege and power that goes with being a Hebrew in disguise as an Egyptian prince, and he's ready to become a warrior, to rise up and fight against the injustice faced by his people. And and people argue about whether what Moses did here is right or wrong. There was injustice going on, clearly. Here is an Egyptian beating a Hebrew in the context of the Hebrews being greatly ill-treated. Is this meant to be mighty Moses fighting oppression, intervening in injustice? The word for striking when he strikes the Egyptian, um, uh, and he, well, the word is translated, he killed him here in verse 12. Um, that, that is the word that, um, uh, that, that is used later of God striking Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So is this just kind of divinely sanctioned justice? 
Well, the way that he acts suggests otherwise. He seems to feel guilty straight away as he buries the body in the sand. And then look what happens next with the two Hebrews fighting each other. Uh, Moses is really getting into this peacemaker role that he's, ta- he's sort of seen to fit to take on himself. I'm the peacemaker. I'm going to sort this out. And straight away they take offense at him. You know, who made you our ruler and judge, they say. What's it to you, matey? It's effectively what they mean. Do you, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses pleads. And once again, Pharaoh is out to kill him and he's forced into hiding in the land of Midian. So do you see what ha- what's happened here? In verse 11, at the beginning, he, he was important. He was respectable. He was a person of position and authority. He was a somebody. But by verse 15, he's lost all of that. He's a nobody. He's on the run. His career prospects are over. He's rejected. He's been rejected at the ballot box by the electorate, as it were. And, w- and what we're seeing here is that before God can use Moses in the great task that lies ahead, it needs to be clear God can't use the proud. He can't use those who think they can rely on their own strength. He can't use those who think they can take it on themselves to save themselves or save others. Moses at this point is acting entirely on his own initiative. You know, here's a problem, I'm the one to solve it. And God is showing him it's not going to be like that. Again and again the Bible tells us God exalts the humble, but he humbles the proud. His power is made perfect, not in strength, but in weakness. Those who think that they're God's gift to the world, that he's lucky to have us, are not the kind of people that he can use. And this says to us today, beware the kind of people and solutions and saviours that you put your trust in, on whatever level. Whether it's in in government, whether it's in business, whether it's in friendship, whatever level we might be talking about, we are attracted to strength and power. And then we value people by what we think they can do for us. Even in the church, we're tempted often to think that worldly strength and polish and leadership is what, uh, and impressiveness is what leadership is all about. We don't value what God values, which is weakness, not strength, humility, not pride. And the reason that that matters is what we see next. God can't use the proud, but secondly, he can use the weak. Verses 16 to 22, back in Midian, the scene is a well. And if you were with us when we studied Genesis over the last couple of years, you might remember, do you remember there's scenes that that happen by wells are meant to kind of ring all kinds of bells straight away. So in a modern film, if the scene is set maybe on the balcony of an expensive restaurant in Italy with an amazing view of rolling Italian hills, And there's a table set for two with a couple of red roses in a vase and the champagne on ice and it's sunset and the candles have been lit. You just know straight away this is a love scene. Straight away. And off we go. And and this is basically the same thing. So when you're by a well in the Bible, that is what you're expecting. This is a love scene. And that is exactly what happens here. Moses still cares massively about injustice, but he has perhaps learned something about how to express that better. Here are these male shepherds pushing the seven daughters of the prince of Midian out the way, and Moses intervenes, and he helps to provide water for their flock. 
and they go home and they tell their dad, Ruel, and he goes, what do you mean you were at a well and a man acted honorably to save you and you haven't invited him for dinner? So you see, it's a, it's a love story. And he marries Zipporah. But then there's a bit of a downbeat ending, verse 22. As his son is born, he names him Gershon, which means foreigner. And he says, I have become a stranger in a foreign land. Is this really the life that he dreamt of back in Pharaoh's palace? Is this how he expected things to turn out? You know, scraping a living together as a shepherd in exile in Midian, rejected by his own people who aren't interested in his help to save them. And yet we know the ending that Moses doesn't know yet. Stephen, in that speech in Acts, he tells us it's, a, it's another 40 years, this period in Midian. He's amazingly 80 years old. By the time we get to the burning bush in chapter 3 that we'll see next time, he's 80 by then. So he's had this 40-year period where he's been humbled and he's learning what it means to be weak, to be a nobody, to be an outsider. And there are just little hints here of what is to come in the language that is used. Did you notice talk of Moses saving and delivering the women at the well? Verse 17, saving and, and verse 19 and, and, and delivering. These are big exodus words. We're going to see them coming up again and again applied to God and his people, saving and delivering. But for now, he's living in the wilderness. And of course, the, the wilderness is where he will then spend another 40 years leading God's people. And he even here, he provides water for this family. Again, fast forward, you're going to find him providing water in miraculous ways. So can you see we've got little hints even here, even in this time that looks like a situation of failure and no hope in sight. What is God doing in the life and experience of Moses? He is preparing him for what's to come. Can you see? He's got a little bit of life in miniature of what will happen in the future. Isn't it important and encouraging to see that? You see, it's still true now. We're only ever in the middle of the story that God is writing, of our lives as individuals and as a people and whatever. However hopeless things might look, for ourselves or our loved ones or our nation or our world, it is the middle of the story and not the end. And God has a way of using not strength and power, but weakness and what looks like hopelessness in situations where it looks like all is lost. The, the, the ultimate proof that that's how God works, of course, is Jesus, isn't it? Hebrews the book of Hebrews in the, in the New Testament tells us it was necessary for God to make the author of our salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. Not that Jesus was morally or sinfully imperfect, but that he had to become like us and suffer like us and experience what we experience in order then to be our perfect substitute. And Jesus, in fact, followed this same path that Moses followed. You see, the path that began in glory, not in a palace like Moses, but with his father in heaven. And he gave that up and he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, becoming like the people he came to save. He, he went through suffering and he got to the point, Jesus, where it looked like all was totally hopeless and lost and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But in doing that, in that total weakness, he went through death and he came out the other side. And he proved that on the other side of death, on the other side of weakness, is life for those who trust him. And so in weakness, there is ultimately strength. There's a beautiful illustration of this kind of pattern of going from greatness to weakness that we see in Jesus, that we see in Moses. A beautiful illustration of this is something that happened with the Queen, actually. Um, appropriately enough, on, on, on VE Day in, in 1945, I think I shared this at one of the Jubilee events a few months ago, but she and her sister Margaret convinced her parents, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, to let them go and join the, the crowds partying in the streets but just go sort of anonymously. And so off they go, and uh, the Queen later talks about pulling the, the, her cap down over her eyes so she couldn't quite be recognised. And they danced with strangers, and at one point they even joined the Congo, which kind of went in through one door of the Ritz Hotel and came out another door, and on they went. And they ended up back in the Mall in front of Buckingham Palace, chanting with all the crowds, We want the King! And uh, out he came. And it's what one writer calls a reverse Cinderella moment. Can you see? Because the story that we're used to telling is the story where the hero begins in rags and ends in riches. But this is where the hero begins in riches and ends in rags. And that is the pattern of God's kingdom and the way that he saves us with his son, Jesus, with Moses, and even with us. So if we're in the kingdom, if we're trusting Jesus, this is saying to us, suffering, you see, is not some great mistake, some hiccup that shouldn't really happen if we have enough faith. Suffering and weakness are normal in this fallen world, but they are normal and they are ways that God uses to make us more like him, to make us ready to be with him forever in eternity. So if you suffer, when you suffer, we should say, because we will, don't be surprised, but realize this is the path of the kingdom. See, we can embrace weakness. We don't have to be ashamed of the weakness of illness, of grief, of frustration, disappointment, disillusionment, loneliness. You see, Jesus Christ has known those griefs and pains and suffering. The way of the cross is the way that he calls us to follow. It's the way to life with him. And we see just that foretaste of that here in the life of Moses. So expect to suffer, expect that to equip you for what is to come later. We can often look back. We can't see it at the time, but we can often look back later and see how some period of intense suffering was a preparation for something that came later. And if it isn't that, we can be sure it will be a way of fitting us for eternity with him. So God can't use the proud, he can use the weak. And then finally we see the beginning of how God responds to the weak when they cry to him. So verse 23, if you look at that again, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. What does this show us? It says 
God is on the side of his suffering people. And that's not because they deserve it, it turns out, but it's because of the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When it says that he remembered, the point is not that God has forgotten, but that he acts on what he promised. He puts his plan into action. So to anybody suffering, know that when we cry, God hears us and he is concerned, verse 25. And as we will see in the rest of the book, remembering and concern leads to concrete action. And that is where we are as chapter 2 comes to a close. Something remarkable is about to happen in this extraordinary story, but it's not due to human strength, it is due to God. The American preacher D.L. Moody said this about Moses' life. He said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was a somebody, 40 years learning he was a nobody, and then 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Now, today, of course, our minds and hearts, uh, for many of us, will be on the Queen, and though in many ways, of course, she was a somebody, of course she was, her response with that was not to lord it over others in strength, but to serve in weakness and humility and to point away from herself ultimately to Jesus. I heard a great story about this on Friday, which again illustrates much of this. Uh, you'll know the Queen was involved in the state opening of Parliament each year, and she'd go and um, she'd present the Queen's speech written for her by the government, setting out the agenda for the coming year. And uh, she'd do that from her throne in the House of Lords, this great sort of ceremonial occasion. In later years, as we know, she'd grown a little bit too frail um, to kind of do things like go up the stairs that would lead to the throne in the House of Lords. So she would apparently get a lift to the level that the, the throne was actually on in the chamber and then be able to access it on the sort of level rather than have to go up the steps. So she, there she is. She's in the lift with her attendants a few years ago. And up they'd go. But when the doors open, they're not on the right floor. They're on a service floor. Um, and there's a cleaner called Alice who is just waiting there with her trolley. And the doors of the lift opened, and Alice wasn't particularly concentrating, had her head down, and simply just pushed her trolley into the lift. <laughs> the doors closed. She looked up, and she realized she just trapped the Queen of the United Kingdom against the back of the lift <laughs> with her trolley. She swore... <laughs> But far from being offended or angry at the mix-up, the Queen erupted in laughter. And the lift arrived at the right floor. And the Queen insisted, not on sort of saying, you know, Alice, you'd better on your, on your way. The Queen insisted on saying, Alice, you come with me. And so they walked together down the corridor towards the throne, chatting away. And apparently after that meeting, Alice was invited once a year to the palace to have tea with the Queen. Now, that is a sovereign who knows humility is what true greatness looks like. And that picture of the, you know, Alice the cleaner walking with the queen towards the throne, that is a picture of what God offers any of us in Christ. It's not what we deserve. It's better than we could ever imagine. It's intimacy and friendship with God himself. It's the God who hears those who cry to him in weakness 
became in weakness in his son, Jesus, to save his people. We see the shadows of that here in Exodus. We see that fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we can know it for ourselves here and now today in London in the 21st century. Exodus chapter 2 says to us, weakness is the way for God's people. Embrace weakness. Don't be surprised by suffering. And follow the way not of the general philosopher, worldly leader. Follow the way of the saviour. Let's pray. Father God, we are sorry when we think that it's down to us to save ourselves, that or that we need to look to mere human beings to make everything better. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that he embraced weakness and suffering in order through his own death, to bring hope in the face of pain and suffering and sin. And so today we look to him above all, King of kings, Lord of lords. And would you help us to follow him in the way that we live our lives each day, trusting in him. And living lives shaped by the way of the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.